Okay, guess it's right. Hello, everybody. So um, uh, I'm Paul Besh. Welcome to the uh, last um, Air Justice Society webinar presentation for 2023. Um, we've got a, a sizable group here to work through why air reconstructions fail, uh, avoiding pitfalls and improving outcomes um, with a really a focus on um, you know, the uh, pulling a team together, what are the components of the team, identifying and mitigating um, comorbidities, and then through the surgical handoff um, afterwards. This is air reconstruction is one of the more complicated high stakes interventions that air digestive programs may be a part of, though not all of these are done through air programs. Um, a lot of these kids, obviously, we have a lot of uh, acquired um, airway stenoses, and therefore these tend to occur in children with chronic uh, uh, are interrelated and, and multiple chronic conditions. Um, and these conditions need to be identified and uh, managed and optimized um, before, during, and after surgery. And so that'd be the focus of this uh, webinar. The overall uh, breakdown, we're going to have um, Dr. Kelly Johnson um, go through some society announcements at the beginning, and then I'll we'll have some things at the very end as well. Um, then Janet German from Cincinnati Children's will talk about the multidisciplinary team convening it uh, and the how to and what those, uh, the rationale behind it. I'll work through some of the pulmonary comorbidities and Dana Williams will walk through the GI. Um, Dr. Probst will um, talk about the handoff to for post-surgical um, care and components related to that. And then we'll work through a few cases um, throughout with the whole panel of uh, this uh, multidisciplinary team. And uh, yeah, and field some questions along the way. And we'll, there'll be an ongoing discussion, I think, really as we go, because that'll be the, um, the important aspect of this of this um, um, topic. So with that, I will um, hand over to, to Kayla. Can you stop sharing for a sec? Sure can. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I'm glad to be here, and I'm super excited to learn from this illustrious international panel of multidisciplinary experts. And I just wanted to give a couple of brief announcements in addition to the content we're going to see tonight, which I'm really excited about rounding out the fourth of our webinar series for 2023. Um, we will be announcing the candidates for the Air Digestive Society Board and Executive Committee elections, which will open tomorrow. Nominations closed yesterday, and uh, as well as a venue for the Air Digestive Society annual meeting in both 2024, we're also going to hint at what 2025 is going to look like. Um, and all of those things, announcements are going to be made at the end of this webinar. So you get to stick around 60 to 90 minutes from now. We're going to go through those details. And that not is not just to keep you on the line um, but there will be people joining, and I want to make sure I, I get this message out to everybody. So we'll announce those things at the end. And lastly, we'll also just mention again the collaboration that we're going to have with INPAT for the Air Digestive Society and INPAT meeting in Santiago, Chile, March 20th through 22nd. We have recently um, finalized plans to include the March 20th Air Digestive Society meeting as the first webinar for 2024. So if you can't make the trip to Santiago, you will be welcome to tune in virtually and to webcast the entire event on March 20th and see the content that we're gonna to get to experience for those of us that can make the trip. So that's all I have for now. And I'll tune back in at the end to and make the rest of those announcements.
All right. So first, um, we'll go on to our next speaker, who is uh, Jana German, who's been uh, here for a long time. This is she's very close to retirement. She's been involved with the Air Digestive Program at Cincinnati Children's for uh, a long time, back when I was there. And she has a tremendous amount of expertise in this area. And we'll talk about the team approach um, and the rationale. So, Jana. Thanks, Paul. Um, I get to hit the general overview and I'll let the others take the specifics. Um, uh, why do airway reconstructions fail? Um, usually, let's we'll start at the beginning with, there's usually a referral in for surgery and um, folks will get a history in, or intake that may be done by um, some of our nurses or in other institutions or other disciplines that may be done by the doc. And the goal of the patient or the family is identified as either airway reconstruction, decannulation, or maybe they just want a second opinion. Usually once you get those, there's two pathways that those follow. One is an, a general airway pathway, and uh, the other is the multidisciplinary pathway. On the airway pathway, this tends to be pretty anti-centered. Um, it may include referrals to GI or POM to identify any problems that may put an airway reconstruction at risk. Um, other assessments may be done if needed, um, like uh, imaging or speech eval, uh, swallowing eval. Um, usually it includes a scope maybe including EGD and uh, FlexBunk. And we'll take a look at all the results and then plan and schedule the airway reconstruction. This is typically for a patient who has minimal com comorbidities, um, an isolated airway problem. Local providers um, are very actively involved and they, or they may just want a second opinion. The second path is the multidisciplinary path. Um, and this we would put through in our institution through the aerodigestive um, group. Usually the history identifies multiple comorbidities. Um, many times that uh, uh, includes congenital anomalies, um, developmental delays, emerging skills, chronic lung problems. Maybe these are preemies. They don't have good mus muscle control. Um, uh, they may have a variety of um, skills for swallowing and eating. Um, the evaluation is best um, determined by the team. Um, looking at the history of the patient, usually it has a multi uh, multidisciplinary approach from medical, surgical, and then allied health. Allied health being some of your nurses and nurse practitioners, speech therapy, um, social workers may be involved as well. Um, also, um, you may have other people on your team like anesthesia. Uh, 
once the, the comprehensive evaluation is planned, that usually looks like an anesthesia consult. These are kids who have airway, um, high-risk airways, and anesthesia wants to be ready to deal with anything. Um, we'll consult with GI, palm, ENT. Um, imaging, sometimes imaging is done up front. Other times, depending on their history, we may hold that till after our airway eval to see if we see levels of obstruction um, after the scopes. Um, triple scopes, impedance, voice eval, swallow evaluation. We also might include a cardiology referral or general surgery. Um, many of these kids have cardiac anomalies or syndromes that include cardiac anomalies. And this helps us plan for their needs and see if they're ready for surgery. The team is very complicated and involves a lot of communication. And um, you can see with all the overlapping circles, we all have both our individual skills as well as complementary skills to each discipline. Different approach, different uh, providers may approach things a little bit different. Um, and it requires a lot of conversation. Uh, at Cincinnati, meeting together on a weekly basis is at the heart of that communication. Um, and there we can review cases, plan, discuss problems, and look at the best way to optimize a patient if they're moving forward with reconstruction. Advantages to this pathway. Um, we can do a proactive assessment to determine the patient's current health. Are they ready to move forward? We can proactively identify levels of obstruction. Maybe they have a component of OSA. Maybe they've had coenal atresia and they still have some stenosis there. Um, we identify issues that may prevent moving ahead with reconstruction. Um, identify ways to optimize the patient's health and problems that need to be addressed prior to surgery. Some of the challenges to going this pathway is insurance and expense. Another one is parents are uh, sometimes resistant uh, um, due to having local providers. They've already had scopes. They've already had studies done. And that those providers have told, have told them what they think and they trust them. So they don't understand why they're coming to get the whole thing all over again. Um, usually we'll, we'll go through that rationale to get their buy-in um, and explain the importance of us understanding each of those um, systems, body systems as well as looking at how to optimize them for reconstruction. Challenges, communication within the teams is always a challenge. You have people who are out, people um, who are on call, um, some who are on service and getting everybody there is like herding elephants sometimes. Um, and I'm sure there's many more that I have not identified.
Sorry, guys. There, sorry. <laughs> Plan, if we decide to move forward with reconstruction, um, after we've addressed all their medical problems, which Paul um, is going to begin with, um, we anticipate ways to proactively um, uh, address pre-op and post-op issues. Is there a colonist, are they colonized? And is there a colonization plan pre and post-op so they don't get infected? Um, are there areas of, of obstruction that we need to address first, like TNAs, or do they have malacia? We need a plan for medications that may have a positive or negative effect on surgical outcomes. We um, need to look at appropriate methods to optimize nu nutrition post-op. So we need a feeding plan. Uh, do they have issues with reflux and vomiting? Um, does it need, do they need to have a J-tube placed? Do they have constipation um, that will create an issue post-op? Um, are they going to aspirate once we do the reconstruction um, with their stents in? And how do we prevent that? And... Uh, Why do reconstructions fail? I'd have to say the same thing Benjamin Franklin says, and that's if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. But as Robert Burns wrote and Mike Rudder would say, sometimes the best laid plans of mice and men may go awry. So that's what I have to start with. Paul, I'll give it to you. All right, thanks, Janet. Um, okay, yeah. So we had a discussion, you know, in in pre preparation for this about um, how we do some of this planning at our our various centers. Cincinnati is a huge place and has high volume, and so in obviously identifying children who are a little have fewer comorbidities and a little more straightforward versus those who are more complex. You kind of channel them through different routes, right? But then, you know, it, here at Mayo, we have, we do far fewer number of area reconstructions. And so in order to have, you know, to be able to count on pulling our team together and to have the people who are engaged in those evaluations, we run all of our kids through Arrow because it's kind of the same small core providers and it's kind of how we have to do it. And I, I don't know if anybody has any um, you know, comments from, you know, CHOP or Rady or Phoenix or, uh, you know, how it's, how you guys handle, you know, the evaluation and, and um, intake of Arrow reconstruction patients and how you decide. Yeah, at um, at Chop, we uh, have an intake process. Uh, sounds similar to Cincinnati, where a nurse practitioner will actually um, either field calls from parents who want a second opinion, or from other providers who are referring patients in, um, and they similarly will kind of uh, send them to different attendings in our group, um, and then we present those uh, at a multidisciplinary conference. 
uh, where you know all the different members of the team are there. It's kind of the the, the backbone of good communication. I think um, you know Janet had talked about communication being key. So and then and then we see them together in a clinic where ENT, um, Palm, GI, SLP, all or some of us will be in the room at the same time so we can have a conversation and and try to avoid some of those communication pitfalls. Yeah, I think I'll add in there, like, I think it's, it's so critical, that whole point of being able to sort of get the story beforehand. And I think, and that's where I think a lot of us do in a very similar sort of model, but it's just having that outreach. And we really learned that having, you know, having our people who have good clinical backgrounds, making these calls and making the connections is absolutely critical. And then start setting up the process for these families to understand what that journey is going to look like. In Phoenix, um, Mark Gerber told me we do about 20 a year. I haven't counted how many come through aerodigestive, which is our usual pathway for those patients uh, with a hefty, nice intake prior to presentation at the aerodigestive. We also have a similar setup with CHOP as far as a uh, complex airway uh, conference. Uh, that's just once a month for us. Uh, in which we discuss some of those challenges, particularly in view of findings in the aerodigestive um, workups. Paul, if I could just say one last thing. Um, you know, I think one thing that is really important to keep in mind is I think different programs are at different stages in evolution. I mean, I remember when I was a resident, we didn't have GI Palm and everybody sitting in the same uh, room talking. And this has taken a long time to establish um, I think just starting communication and identifying partners who are interested in airway, um, in GI, home, SLP, having people who have kind of common goals start kind of building these bridges is a starting point. And then, you know, working towards all of us being in the same clinic is, is, is a good goal. But obviously that, that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, I think something that's very different from... Uh... South America and North America is that the way we work, we're not in private hospitals. Most of us are in public hospitals. That's where these big interventions are, are performed. We're doing 12 to 13, 15 airway reconstructions a year, and we don't have a nurse practitioner that. So the intake comes directly, the children are sent to the airway clinic. Uh, and so this is basically the ENTs that are triaging the kids and picking those that need aerodigestive attention or that can be put through our clinic and discussed, you know, with pulmonary and, and GI. Mostly we save the aerodigestive spots, which are a few. We have a clinic uh, that we are together nowadays for the past um, three years now. So we have GI, pulmonary and ENT, speech therapists. We're all together in the same clinic, but this is once a week and we can discuss four or five cases maximum. So we keep those slots for the children who have more com comorbidities and that's the lesser part of them that are the same ones having airway reconstruction. Mm. Our, um, our aero program at Cincinnati, we are not all together in um, the aero clinic pre-op. Um, uh, Palm and GI are there, but uh, many of the kids are assessed separately. So in anesthesia, they're down in same day surgery. Um, if they're an ENT leader um, or have a trach, we'll see them in ENT clinic. And then some of the, the fees and the speech stuff would get to, done down in ENT clinic or radiology. Um, 
So it, we're kind of spread out where we come together is on the Wednesday meeting. So um, it, but then careful what you wish for because we have a lot of kids to go through and sometimes the time for discussion is difficult, um, especially um, if um, providers have other obligations. You hit on a point that I'd like to kind of one also make and maybe ask uh, the panel. To, to me, I do feel like this coming together in person where there's conversation is is something that is uh, really important. Something is gained different than having all the, you know, for example, access to all the notes is very different than having uh, a conversation uh, between these providers and the more complex patients. And I, it's, uh, it sounds like this is a feature, even though the setup may be different and the resources may be different of pretty much all of our programs. Am I correct? Absolutely. I think, and that's like one of those things that there is as in finding how to get like, we, we learned as we grow, like as we've been growing, it's like, you only have so much time, kind of like Janet, like you say, it's like you get everyone together, but it's depending on sort of where your program is and sort of what your volume is, like that gets to be pretty overwhelming and finding that way to have those conversations be sort of the key pieces of information and those key discussions that need to, be, to happen. Because I think at the end of the day, we all know as great as Epic is, that it's trying to track down what the what's the actual meaningful part of Epic. I know we've struggled quite, you know, over over time to actually have like one summary note that actually is useful to people, but doesn't inundate people. And I think so it's trying to hone down, but first we had to get that discussion piece where we could get through all the patients that needed to get to be gotten through. Yeah. I've always said that the the real heart of air digestive care is really the synthesis piece of it, you know, and this is even outside, of course, air reconstruction, but in all the types of presenting um, clinical entities that we see in Aero. Right. Well, I guess it's my turn to chat a little bit about the pulmonary stuff. Um, as mentioned here at, uh, in pulmonary uh, at Mayo. So kids with laryngotracheal stenosis typically don't have an airway problem alone. Um, some of them are more obviously more straightforward than others, but these, you know, a lot of these are acquired um, um, stenoses and those kind of things happen in complex kids. So they're preemies, kind of chronic lung disease, feeding uh, problems, swallowing problems. They can have malacia, airway injury, bronchial responsiveness, pulmonary hypertension. Um, yeah, uh, COVID is related to underlying, underlying um, syndromes. Older kids can have other types of things like autoimmune and autoinflammatory conditions. So there's often other things at play. I'm going to kind of focus, sort of build this a little bit around this um, uh, recent publication because it goes through things pretty well. And I like how it's um, broken down. It, it just I think it creates a nice uh, framework for some of this discussion. When I look at looked at the um, pulmonary uh, and airway uh, related comorbidities, you know, what this kind of speaks to that. So, you know, this is four centers, um, airway reconstruction patients, they're LTRs. And you know, two, uh, three quarters of them had some pulmonary comorbidity. Um, a lot of BPD, not surprising because a lot of these were are, are, uh, uh, former preemies. Um, asthma shows up a bit. Pulmonary hypertension shows up a bit. Trachomalacia shows up a lot, um, as does bronchomalacia, and to a lesser extent, some um, dynamic and sedic upper airway obstruction at the level of the, of the uh, pharynx and the, and the glottis. Um, surprisingly to me a little bit, that bronchiectasis did not show very much at all. Only 4.2% of these patients 
um, and only 6.1% had aspiration, though it's not entirely clear, you know, what was the requirement to be counted as, as, as aspiration. So I imagine that there was some range of dysphagia that was exceeded this number in this population. Um, <clears throat> cardiovascular um, comorbidities were overall less common, as were genetic um, and endocrine and musculoskeletal. And these are included in my talk because these lives have direct pulmonary consequences and affect pulmonary um, physiology. Um, PDA and ASDs were more common, as were Down syndrome and uh, 22Q, 11 deletion, hypotonia um, to a, a lesser extent. For me, I like to break these things down to what does the physiologic abnormality of these different things create? Because that's really what we're managing. We're managing and, and trying to um, improve underlying physiologic um, abnormalities. Some of them we cannot. Some of them interact uh, synergistically. And some of them are particularly bad. That's I feel like I'm channeling little Bob Wood by calling them humdingers. So don't um, shoot me for that. But um, so pulmonary hypertension is a big one. Um, airway resistance problems are kind of big. Um, uh, because of their effect on airflow, and they may be a reversal, and they may be not. And in those that are really associated with um, airway clearance or cough clearance limitations, or set you up for kind of a downward spiral um, of infection and and mucus encumbrance leading to air, airway um, issues. So if we take like what I'm sure showed up quite a few uh, times in this large sample. We're, we're a preemies. So a former 25 weaker can have this range of comorbidities um, co coexisting to varying degrees and severity. So BPD, well, that's not just one thing. Do they, were they bad enough to be ventilator dependent? Do they have oxidation issues currently or in the past? Some BPDers are very bronchoreactive and others have more like oxygenation and, and um, compliance issues. And they're frankly not nearly as bad as the air trappers. Um, pulmonary hypertension, tracheobronchomalacia, a lot of current or past steroid exposure, um, CNS injury, and how bad does that affect airway tone? Does it affect the airway clearance? How is their feeding and swallowing? Um, do they have sleep disorder breathing? Were they sedation nightmares in their past and therefore they may be difficult to sedate um, after air reconstruction? These things are all can all be relevant. This is an older paper um, by Rudder and Sandro and um, looking at the kinds of buckets of things that can lead to a failure of airway reconstruction. And there are certain things that a pulmonologist has can have, certainly have input on. So unidentified, particularly dynamic airway lesions or peripheral lesions, um, non-airway diagnoses as well, inappropriate patient selection and timing, um, and then technique staging and dealing with um, infectious disease-related complications. Those are certainly well within the um, the um, purview of um, pediatric pulmonology, though they can obviously these things all bleed over. Oh yeah, and, and aspiration-related issues. In this, um, looking at surgical success in the univariate models, um, not having an upper airway lesion was important, was beneficial. Not having a musculoskeletal condition was uh, uh, improved um, single surgery success. And then trachea and bronchomalacia were, were um, negative um, uh, predictors of, of single surgery success. Overall success was infected by not having a genetic syndrome and uh, particularly not having trisomy 21. When they threw them into the multivariate model, the again, the absence of upper, of a upper or lower airway comorbidities was, was uh, impactful. Again, the absence of musculoskeletal comorbidities like scoliosis, thoracic insufficiency, and hypotonia um, was important. Having a tracheal lesion was beneficial relative to sublac or other or non-tracheal issues. 
Um, pulmonary hypertension stood out as, a, as another big negative uh, predictor in the multivariate model. Um, and also not having a, uh, not being syndromic. And I'm, I don't really know if I understand the, the, um, the, um, the risk of ASD here in this population. I don't think the authors really had, you know, had a, a clear understanding of that either. But really, if you look at this as a whole, like genetic disorders, especially twice every 21 and musculoskeletal conditions were low prevalence comorbidities, but they kind of cut through as having a significant um, negative impact on surgical outcome. That worth sort of, I guess, paying attention to. What I was what I found notable was that bronchiectasis did not make the list of surgical predictors, although or outcome predictors. There was a trend, though, it just wasn't statistically significant. I'm a little bit unsure the capture rate of bronchiectasis in the population because um, the performance of chest CT to identify um, may, um, I just don't know what it is, may not have been very high. Um, and I'm not sure how surprising this or not, but BPD was, was not. I mean, it was like dead in the middle, like a solid one for a predictor, like it didn't with a, a wide range. And that may reflect the timing and the the development to improvement over time in most BPD um, patients. Um, and it may have been hard to pick out the the um, the severely immature or those with a strongly bronchoreactive phenotype. Um, aspiration didn't show up, but also had a very low prevalence and I'm not sure what the definition was. Um, adrenal insufficiency was not there, um, but also very low prevalence in the in the in the cohort. Um, and then the other multiple uh, individual genetic conditions were too low to evaluate them uh, with any kind of power. So about trachea why is it so bad? Well, I would hearken back to the physiologic derangements. So you know, they trachea cause dynamic large air obstruction, which can lead to respiratory distress and air trapping. So that's a that's a a big physiologic hit in and of itself um, that can impact airway clearance as well. So there's two of the humdingers that I listened bef listed before, and they're both very exacerbatable. So if there's respiratory illness, of course, trachea behaves badly, um, but also other airway irritation causes trachea and bronchomalacia to behave badly. So that includes intubation, for example, um, airway drying from like being on an anesthesia machine for a couple hours at any point in time. We certainly take a uh, Note of that sometimes in the bad kids with airway compression malaria who are having spine surgery, I we some many of them we do those procedures on a ventilator with a heat humidification rather than on the anesthesia machine because it's so dry and you can see, I mean I, whenever I see scopes before and after they look terrible after it's thick secretions very dry mucosa just from the just from the anesthesia machine. Um, also, you know trachea could be a real pain to manage. And um, so when you think about the modifiable comorbidities, it can, it can be challenging. Now, in the study, it wasn't great in terms of severity. There's generally a, probably a, a very loose correlation between visible severity and symptom severity, and we tend to treat based on the symptom severity. Um, and, you know, again, there's a long list of things you can do to help manage trachea and bronchomalacia, but none of it really manages the malacia directly, or hardly any of it does. So, you know, identifying other cough triggers and, and airway irritant triggers. Um, we teach older kids how to cough and uh, breathe during exercise in different ways. After event, we try, but it sucks. Um, systemic steroids, some kids respond, some don't. Um, you know, they get bacterial bronchitis and you need to treat them long enough to resolve them. Bethanicol, it can be useful, but really only the TF kids. <clears throat> airway clearance, these are, notice these are all kind of like reactive things, not a great prevent, list of preventative uh, measures. Um, 
And so air air clearance, like an aerobic or something that has positive extra pressure um, can be useful to, um, to you know, um, prevent pneumonia, um, but doesn't necessarily have a great impact on their, on their um, breathing physiology. And then you have surgical interventions reserved for those really bad cases. And, um, uh, and that list of potential surgical interventions is also fairly long. What about pH? Why is it so bad? Well, the mortality rate stinks. It's fairly high. Fortunately, the younger kids that like the preemies that we see often improve as their lung um, maturity improves. Those things track together. And again, this is another exacerbatable condition. So you get some hypoxia hypercarbia and they can really um, deteriorate. If they have an intracardiac shunt, they just desaturate uh, spectacularly. And if they don't, then they lose a cardiac output and that's even worse. Um, you know, in these kinds of studies, it may also serve as a proxy for more severe lung disease, because this is where we see pulmonary hypertension the most in pediatrics, is that secondary to lung disease. And a lot of that is, is the kids who have underdeveloped pulmonary vascular beds due to the prematurity of BPD, due to uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernias or trisomy 21. So again, the trisomy 21 patients, they have lots of other issues, but one of those issues they have is is lung immaturity to some variable degree. And with that can come um, uh, immaturity in the pulmonary vascular bed, plus uh, you know, increased incidence of congenital heart disease and, and low tone and swallowing dysfunction and all the other things that go along with it. Um, it has potential to affect systemic perfusion because if you have poor perfusion through your lungs, it doesn't get to the left heart and you can, uh, it can affect um, systemic perfusion. Does that sometimes affect, um, you know, in a, in a subtle and maybe not obvious way, um, airway perfusion and healing, especially when you have something like a a, a graft that has to um, be well perfused when it doesn't have direct uh, perfusion itself at the beginning. So why is bronchiectasis maybe not so bad in this population? Well, it didn't show up very commonly and may not have been identified uh, with high fidelity. Um, it did seem to have some impact on statistical significance, um, but we often identify it too when we look for it at a fairly mild degree of severity. Um, it can be a very manageable situation. It can be the sign of a manageable condition. It can be in and of itself managed well. And so if it's identified and managed, it therefore may not um, impact um, airway reconstruction um, strongly. And it doesn't really impact the physiology of breathing all that much. It's a risk factor for infection, which again can be managed. But unless you have terrible mucus encumbrance or a lot of secondary malacia from the airway injury, it, it doesn't have a strong direct effect on breathing physiology. And I may think that's in the, the ones that do are the things that seem to affect um, surgical success, especially in the short term. Um, without getting too in the weeds, I mean, the management of bronchiectasis uh, can be uh, broad. You know, it needs to be identified, managed underlying conditions. Airway clearance, of course. Um, please no pulmazine because it has a higher um, risk of um, mortality and non-CF bronchiectasis. Um, please don't use inhaled steroids either because it doesn't do anything unless they also have asthma. Uh, identifying exacerbations and treating appropriately, sometimes chronic azithromycin for suppression and if it gets pneumonia, eradicated. So I kind of like put these things on a little bit of a spectrum on manageability or not, because I think that ones that are challenging to manage are likely the ones that are going to be um, of greater consequence in um, getting through airway reconstruction. So, you know, genetic conditions can be challenging to manage. There's just lots of different things. And a lot of them, there aren't a lot of leverage to pull. pH, you know, treating the lung disease, sure. But, you know, our bronchodilators, we use them and they help sort of, kind of, sometimes, somewhat. Um, but otherwise, it's just have to wait. 
Um, chest wall disease can be difficult to manage because we can make chest lung volumes bigger, but we can't make ribs move better. Um, trigger bronchomalacia can be a challenge. The reactive larynx that's, um, can be a challenge, especially if it's not due to EOE or reflux. Whereas asthma and respiratory infection related stuff, aspiration, those things can be managed okay. Um, you know, sometimes you have unrelenting aspiration, it's tough. Um, you have um, severe neurologic injury, which can create airway clearance problems with the bronchiectasis. And that, of course, shifts the bronchiectasis to the challenging to manage column um, to me. BPD is kind of a funny one because it depends a lot on the physiology. The bronchoreactive air trappers with bad malacia, those kids are tough. Um, they behave badly, but the ones who mostly have uh, oxygenation problems and poor lung compliance, those kids just kind of got to wait a little while and they can kind of work through quite a bit. Um, um, so, um, and I, you know, some, and also the last question I had was because some of the comorbidities on there were present commonly, but didn't affect surgical outcome um, to a great uh, degree. It may these patients were all serviced through um, um, places uh, centers that have multidisciplinary programs, and it may speak to the engagement and then management of those conditions, so they did not impact um, surgical outcomes in this group. In the interest of time, we can save questions to the end, unless anybody has any like burning commentary to make. I'll take that as a note then, and we'll hand over to Dana to go over uh, the GI comorbidities. Hi, everyone. Thanks to the Society for inviting me to this webinar. Um, I am going to go more on current evidence of how GI comorbidities should be worked up because this is um, the uh, reason for most of the fights in our aerodigestive community at PCH. Um, and I'd like to use some further um, ideas on what the future of a pre-LTR workup should be. Uh, particularly with the home and the aerodigestive team. Um, I have a quick case that presented to our aerodigestive um, clinic at Phoenix Children's, a 17-year-old male, former preemie with grade uh, three subglottic stenosis and tracheostomy who presented to us for evaluation of LTR. And the reason was that their primary GI who uh, had originally uh, received the request from the ENT uh, on workup said that the child was asymptomatic and therefore no workup was necessary. Um, this is a child who has pediatric feeding disorder, has known dysphagia and aspiration, however, can take some PO uh, safely and is willing to eat, but most of the energy comes through the G-tube and absolutely there's no GI symptoms. So aerodigestive um, um, endoscopies, i.e. Um, upper endoscopy showed erosive esophagitis. You can see uh, a grade B of what we would call LA classification of erosive esophagitis. And um, this is just an FYI of a pH probe that was performed in this patient at the same time, barely makes it to the abnormal of 75 reflux events per 24 hours for this particular recording. 
uh, and, and the uh, reflux index to the upper esophagus uh, is greater than 0.1, which you will see a little bit later on of what might um, mean. Um, in any event, as, as we do with uh, mucosal disease to this extent, uh, treatment with proton pump inhibitors for three months with a repeat endoscopy showed um, healing of those erosions. Uh, which is a very nice outcome. Um, and a pH probe performed, a pH impedance probe performed at the same time had some improvement, but again, very nonspecific if I looked at it with the GI lens alone. So as a team, we all look at the LTR goals and obviously we wanna achieve the cannulation in this child. We wanna have overall success and we wanna reestablish the laryngeal function in all those areas. So what is the evidence to show that this kind of GI workup prior to pediatric airway reconstruction is a value. Um, so more than 10 years ago, and I didn't go over, you know, even earlier studies that really look at the issues very much in the lens of reflux alone um, and, and are all over the place as far as association or no association. So this particular study looked at impedance probe for the uh, one of the first studies uh, in this patient population. It was a, a, a study from Cincinnati children looking at over 50 patients, primarily with uh, subglottic stenosis. And this is the workup that the, those children received uh, in the pre-airway reconstruction uh, setting. And there's a lot of different parts of that pH impedance measurement uh, that we look at as a gastroenterologist for reading, including um, the acidic events or the heaviness or the load of the acidic events, the proximal esophageal events, the symptom association probability, you know, coughing with that within that two minutes of the reflux episode. And, and really the study showed that the impedance measurement may be important in guiding management in those patients. Interestingly enough, only 20% of patients in this study actually had a change in management following that particular study. But when you take a pH impedance and upper endoscopy, the, um, the role in change in management pre-op um, went up significantly. And realizing that symptoms alone are not a good indicator of any of those uh, outcomes and that we should look beyond just acid reflux and certainly non-acid reflux or events are just as likely to cause symptoms. And one, one sort of piece of information that, that is lingering on in further studies as well is what happens in children with fundoplication. And we realize that this, uh, the, the change of management based on uh, any kind of um, uh, impedance or pH studies in uh, fundoplication are not helpful. Um, and furthermore, in that patient population, the fundoplication pa patients didn't really have a successful surgical outcome, really suggesting that risk factors other than acid reflux were influencing the success of the airway reconstruction. This particular group a couple of years later from um, uh, it was a, a, a collaboration between Texas and Pittsburgh and Michigan, uh, 45 young children that underwent airway reconstruction. And the comorbidities were really um, thought out very carefully in this study. 70% of this cohort had biopsy-proven reflux, and we're talking about acid uh, or esophagitis on biopsies, and I'll show you how that is kind of constant finding in this group of patients prior to airway reconstruction. 
And 45% um, and of patients had dysphagia and aspiration. And what they noticed is that if post-tracheal reconstruction, if the patient had a complication, that it was in 70% of patients, it was in the patients with dysphagia. And only 18% of patients with complications actually did not have dysphagia. So really um, creating a role for evaluation of dysphagia and aspiration. Um, and furthermore, this study showed that their overall um, decannulation uh, rate increased from 80%, which was considered acceptable at the time, uh, to 96% in this particular cohort. So they actually put out an algorithm of how all the patients are that come to that uh, to to their centers are evaluated prior uh, for comorbidities prior to their LTR, as presented here, including this speech assessment and sometimes instrumental assessment of dysphagia. Moving on to the UniCenter CHOP study, which is sort of the preemptive of the study that Paul was um, sharing a moment ago, and I'll just focus on the GI lens. Um, this was a 10-year uh, retrospective study about 160 patients at CHOP. Uh, the primary outcome was decannulation if the patient had a tracheostomy before LTR or resolution of symptoms. Um, the assessment of those patients was different after the era of aerodigestive around uh, 2011. So the patients, some of the patients included in that 10-year uh, retrospective study um, had endoscopies and pH impedance, um, and, and some had or did not have flexible bronchoscopy for those same reasons. The rate of change in management due to those workups was uh, definitely higher than previously assessed. And the factors that were associated in the GI realm with LTR success overall were EGD, having an EGD, just having it, obviously that comes with the findings, and having normal findings uh, had a big impact. Decreased overall outcomes were associated if an EGD was not performed, if a pH impedance probe was not performed, and if there were abnormal EGD uh, biopsies, which would uh, put it in the category of mucosal disease. In this study, found application made no difference. Um, so not a negative impact like we saw before in the Cincinnati cohort, but definitely no difference. And uh, to go on to the times of decannulation, there were some GI factors in that uh, prediction as well. Uh, with a shorter time to decannulation if the EGD had a gr normal gross appearance, um, the uh, impedance um, reflux index greater than 0.1 to the upper um, esophagus and other factors were uh, non-GI uh, kind of caught my attention and are listed there as well. So what I took away from this study, which is really uh, reproduced and, and magnified uh, in the 2023, so most recent study that Paul shared as well, Performing an EGD, an impedance pH, the absence of esophageal pathology, they're important parts of that um, preoperative evaluation. Um, all those different things that we did for years and, and we really were hoping would have a huge impact um, in the outcomes of LTR did not uh, show statistical significant changes in the outcomes, including surgical reflux treatment, i.e. found application aggressive, pharmaceutical acid reflux therapy, so the antacid portion of that treatment and dietary changes. None of those um, were showing um, a uh, trend to statistically affect the outcome. 
And this study uh, was um, reproduced and magnified and, um, and a better prediction uh, model was actually uh, generalized, was actually produced um, when three more centers uh, added their cohorts to a multi-center study looking at the largest cohort of, uh, of LTR and pediatric population of, of about 500 patients. What I wanted to point out as far as the GI findings is that the incidence of EOE in this group is quite high when you're looking at incidence of EOE in general popul pediatric population age specific, um, we're looking at six to 7%. Um, so definitely having an EGD and eliminating that and, and optimizing the management is very important. Uh, when we look at studies of the yield of uh, the of a presence of microscopic esophagitis and uh, aerodigestive endoscopies, uh, we're probably seeing about uh, microscopic esophagitis in about 50% of the cases. The uh, CHOP um, original cohort had uh, a much higher number there. Um, and some of those factors were touched in Paul's uh, no, uh, presentation. So I'm just going to remind everyone, normal appearance of EGD seemed to have a, a positive LTR outcome, um, mucosal disease and reflux of any category, a negative impact. So what shall we do with the 17 months old that presented to our, our digestive program. Well, there's a lot of things we need to ask ourselves to figure that out. And um, and hopefully this is a, uh, a list of queries that was um, uh, that I uh, borrowed, I believe, um, from Denver, uh, one of the Denver papers. Um, really the questions that kind of guide us through that uh, decision making and some of which Janet also touched on. What kind of surgery is appropriate for this patient? And are we going to, are we thinking single versus double? And how do the uh, what are the kind of risks that we expect from that type of uh, surgery? And what are some outcomes regarding their airway, voice, deglutition in this particular child? And did we look at all the comorbidities, not just GI, uh, but also the other important ones, airway and, and uh, beyond? Is the surgical timing appropriate? And what, are, what is the best surgical everything that fits this child comorbidities? Um, I really just kept one slide to remind everyone on optimization, to remind everyone that there isn't just one thing and it's isn't just reflux. And there's new ways to treat aerodigestive system, uh, symptoms, excuse me, whether they're acidic or non-acidic uh, motility agents, including um, 5-HT4 agonists such as motegrity um, that, uh, and, and intrapyloric Botox that can be very helpful for management of symptoms um, in, a, with, in patients with vomiting, for example. Uh, comorbidity con constipation is one that we screen for as well. Um, and we use a variety of antibiotics, including those listed for motility treatment. So I believe the uh, future of pre-LTR and LTR outcomes is in the Aerodigestive Society, uh, whether it's database and prospective studies, definitely multi-center, the largest amount of information we can include. As a gastroenterologist, I'd like to see more um, information on uh, uh, motility assessments and dysphagia, uh, as well as uh, factors uh, that kind of play a role in airway reactivity um, that are of GI origin. So I would be uh, very excited to hear what other centers are doing as far as their GI evaluations um, prior to LTR.
you know, like you said, uh, I'm at CHOP, we do the uh, um, EGD and uh, the probes. Um, something that you said in your talk, which I think is really interesting to me and like moving forward, you know, all of us who do reconstructions and triple scopes, we have these patients that we we get all the BAL studies, we get all the impedance results and and everything's normal. But the ENT is looking in the OR and the airway is just blown up. It's it's inflamed. So obviously there's other factors here which we're not critically assessing or know about yet. And I think one of the things that you highlighted that I'm really interested in is the motility aspect. Um, and I think Hyatt um, gave a talk at AeroDigestive this year, which kind of, you know, a lot of that stuff's very complicated. It went over my head, I got to be honest. But I, I wonder whether we start um, critically involving motility experts in the workup as well. Yeah, what our center is doing now, and it's all uh, in the works, uh, we've done over 100 endo esophageal endoflips uh, in our patients with either dysphagia, pre-airway reconstruction, a variety of clinical um, or aerodigestive setups, so to speak. Um, we, we definitely don't have um, all the data yet, and we also don't have norms in pediatrics. So, you know, the way we're going to look at this is going to be very much criticized and should, and it should be, but we are noticing, and certainly use we use it for screening, but we are noticing a number of patients that have um, hypertensive upper esophageal sphincter, again, out of nowhere with normal esophageal contractility, normal lower esophageal, and how does that play with everything else to be determined? Yeah, we're doing more of that too. And I, you know, what's, I'm curious if you can answer this question because I wonder about the fundoplication thing. Like, is it a marker of worse reflux at some point? Or how often is the fundoplication self behaving badly and they're having impaired esophageal clearance? Because on our, you know, we're doing more and more endoflips. Um, I wish we were doing high resolution manometry with impedance, but because um, it's at least it's beautiful looking. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I'm surprised at how often it's abnormal and how often it's abnormal when we didn't really anticipate it would be abnormal. And I don't know if it's the same if you're doing them kind of you know, the more uh, broadly, if you're finding abnormalities in kids you didn't really expect to find them in. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we have our TFs and we have our vascular rings and we know, you know, usually there's going to be an abnormality and I'm not a motility specialist. So that is part of, you know, the problem as well. I'm just a really excited gastroenterologist, but, uh, but I think that, um, and Hyatt is telling me that uh, really the, the technology that you guys are using at CHOP right now is really a lot more sensitive and more specific uh, for those upper esophageal motility issues. So definitely, uh, it sounds like a thing of the future, but I I do feel that endoflip is a good screening technique and it'll help us kind of scratch the surface. Seems like to have a low barrier of entry, endoflip does, like a, as far as an access point for, you know, it only tells you certain things, of course, but it tells you. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say that too. I think it's one of those things having spent time when Hyatt was here, and then going from having sort of the motility sort of viewpoint and having that like to go into a period where we've been actively recruiting and trying to work through that, it's, it is really interesting. I think when I'm looking back, it's big, it leaves us as a group when we're looking at the different things that we, it's like, we here we are, we've got negative biopsies and things look good, uh, but I know something's wrong. And, and I think that that's like, and I really appreciate what you say about the UES question. I think I've been more and more like, We've been kind of looking at it with a little different eye. 
we struggle with manometry. We struggle with with kind of as you know being a place that we don't have a dedicated motility person right now. When we did, however, we learned a lot doing fees with Hyatt, and we used to do manometry at the same time with fees. And they just some of the clinical signs of some of the symptoms that we see with uh, the sort of UES dysfunction and how that plays through. And I've been I've been you know kind of shocked at some of the things that we've seen. And I. I'm really interested in like how you pick that up because we've seen some kids who actually were running into sort of these with these aspiration problems that were intermittent coming and going. And then we catch it. It's like the UES does a spasm sort of thing. And, you know, it leads us to doing, what do you do? Botox? Do you, do you dilate? Do you do monotony? Yeah, it's like, and then we're finding ourselves injecting laryngeal. It's like, it becomes this like slippery slope of, you know, and how you bring that stuff together because it does relate directly to, you know, this, this airway reconstruction that you know, where you keep entertaining. And so. I think that you're right. I think that there is like this future. And I really think that as we go moving forward, that the answer clearly is is there within our, you know, within the specialties. And it's kind of thinking to that next level. All right. Should we um hand over to uh Evan? Because obviously the, you know, these always comorbidities and always surgical planning extends to the recovery immediate recovery period and if you can't hit off a good plan things don't go well and it merits some uh specific uh attention i think excellent thank you can you hear me yep excellent all right so yeah why airway reconstructions fail and why they make us want to vomit sometimes and so we're talking about the post-operative care on how we can maybe try and avoid uh, some of these uh, uh, failings. So uh, conflicts of interest, uh, none of them apply to uh, uh, today's talk. I will talk about uh, single versus double stage, um, intubation, how we choose appropriate size tube and suctioning carefully and tracheostomies and stay sutures and maturation sutures and complications thereof and uh, steroids, do we use them post LTR? Uh, how do we make a safe handover? And uh, we're going to try and involve the audience um, uh, for a lot of stuff. So um, for single versus double stage, I find single stage, uh, my ideal candidates are sort of the, the neonates with the thyroid allograft or the sort of the teens with the larger airways and the non-reactive uh, laryngeas. Um, and the benefit is obviously you get less superstomal collapse, better quality of life for the patient and the parents. And But you know you, the requirement is you have to really trust your NICU and your PICU um, and the double stage, uh, you know, for sure, the reactive uh, laryngeas um, definitely uh, benefits uh, are that the uh, there's less surgeon hypertension post-op. And uh, the requirement is that the code team has to know that they uh, have to read the sign and not intubate from above. Um, the, you know, just a, a quick uh, poll of the, the panel members. Um, do you find that you perform more single or more double stage um, uh, uh, LTRs at your airway reconstructions uh, open at your place. Do you want to just we sort of run through double stage? More double stage. More double stage. We do more double stage. Okay, and do you think it's generally because you have reactive laryngeas, or is it because you um, uh, just sort of that you know uh, post-op? ICU kind of thing where you feel more comfortable? Mainly because of comorbidities of patients. Yeah, I think because of both, yeah, comorbidities and 
um, ICU, um, you know, care and times where sometimes we're going to be away. There might not be anyone around close. Gotcha. Yeah, it's definitely nice to be able to say the child is going to be a no greater risk airway wise than they were when they came in, right? So, um, okay. So next we're going to move on to intubation. Um, this was a, a nice study by a, a trainee of mine a few years ago. Um, basically, we we did uh, laryngotracheal reconstructions on uh, a whole bunch of pigs and uh, looked at the vasculature um, of uh, uh, uh the airway. And actually before doing the LTR, we just looked at intubation versus LMA, obviously an LMA not going through the airway. And um, those that were intubated had much less angiogenesis and many more degenerative features in their blood supply. So um, basically just showing the injury that intubation uh, causes. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about um, sizing the airway, obviously we all know uh, the Meyer cotton, you know, grading scale, and you know what their uh, uh, size of endotracheal tube should be, and if we uh, put in a tube that's, um, or if we size them with a smaller tube, then uh, we can calculate uh, the you know how much more narrow they are. But um, the interesting thing is that you know as we all know, endotracheal tubes are based on the inner diameter, and endotracheal tubes, um, when you look at the different companies, uh, the wall thickness and therefore the outer diameter is quite different. So uh, um, we spent a lot of time with an Excel spreadsheet and um, you can see in this table uh, on here that I'm circling, um, you can see the ranges when you use different companies, sometimes you get a range from zero to 13% or 26 to 41%, really depending on what kind of company uh, you're using. Um, and the ones highlighted in yellow are ones that actually crossed a uh, Meyer cotton uh, grade from you know two to three or from three to four? Have you? Um, and then uh, on the right, uh, just as an easy summary, is basically just a recreation of all of the you know, you know the the uh, table that um, Meyer and cotton made, but just for every type of common endotracheal tube that's out there. Uh, and the goal was not to get rid of the Meyer cotton grading system. Really, it was. Um, uh, the total opposite, it was to keep it and to keep it accurate. Um, and so um, uh, a little plug, it's uh, this month's laryngoscope. Um, if you wanna rip it out and stick it on your wall, uh, then we can all have fun trying to look at this in a few years. Um, uh, intubation, uh, this is one of my pet peeves, um, the endotracheal tube, uh, suctioning the endotracheal tube. Uh, if you don't suction it properly, you risk granulation tissue, especially pre, uh, with kids with complete tracheal rings, pre-repair and post-repair. Um, this on the little blue sign, these are the signs that I put up next to the beds, reminding people how to suction to appropriate depths, whether it's inline suctioning or non-inline suctioning and uh, scoping patients frequently to make sure that the tip is in the right place. You know, you don't want that tip here on the left side picture. Uh, you want the, the tube pulled back um, so that, uh, you know, you're, you're farther away from, definitely from the complete rings before repair. Um, when uh, you definitely want to prevent uh, dehiscence, um, you know, I, I've had this before, it's not a pretty thing. Um, if someone uh, intubates the patient 
um, and uh, tears apart a new repair that's never good. Uh, so, you know, try and keep the ETTs uh, pretty high. Um, you know, uh, we have signs, et cetera, about shoulder rolls and reintubating over scopes and emergency. Um, one thing, I know this is heresy in a land where most a lot of people have been trained by rudder. Uh, I, he likes his continuous suture, but uh, I find that it, when we started uh, doing interrupted everting sutures for slides, then uh, uh, much less bronching, much better sleep at night for me and um, uh, a less figure of eight deformities. Because he gets his pulmonologist to come in and do the bronching. <laughs> well, right, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> never done this before. I've never gotten a call from an airport saying, hey, can you stop by and make a social visit on so-and-so? <laughs> <laughs> so for the panelists, uh, any additional tips just about intubation itself um, that you can share with the, uh, the rest of the group? I mean, for me, one of the things that Bug was about intubation, which is not just within the surgical reconstruction realm, is you know, when we do scope is his tubes that, you know, the bronchus doesn't start at the tip of the tube that you can see through the tube. You can see where the proximal cuff seal is, the distal cuff seal, and you can see the airway anatomy around it. And when we, before we, now we, we don't have access here to non-microcuff tubes below a 4.0 um, because almost half the time when the tip is in the right place, the cuff is in the glottis. Um, with non-microcuff tubes because they're so long. And so we were having so much granulation tissue and erosion from appropriately placed non-microcuff tubes because they have, a, you know, there's a tip, there's a Murphy eye and the cuff is long. And in many, many younger kids that puts the cuff in the glottis even when the tip is in the right spot. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's kind of a routine to look through and through the tube every time. Um, and uh, and we just, to make it a system issue, we just got rid of those tubes. We don't use them anymore. Um, nice. Can I, can I ask you, how many of you use cuff tubes in the post-op? Not common. For what operation? Yeah, after LTRs and PCTRs. I've used them depending on where the cuff will sit. So, yeah, so I will say it kind of depends on what I've done and what I'm using the tube for. And so, like, if I'm, like, putting in a big tube to try to keep it in place, I usually, I know there's going to be a seal across it sort of regardless, then I usually use it uncuffed. If I'm afraid that they're going to start calling me and bothering me about stuff, then I tend to use a, a cuff tube. Um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I think it is sort of like thinking it out because in the difference between like a micro cuff and a regular cuff tube. So like in slides, I use a micro cuff tube in those so that I have something I can do a little bit with, but not a whole lot with. But we have had pushback on the lack of a Murphy eye with that and when it comes through. So with slides, just because there can be a variety of different sort of, I think the issues that sort of come with it, I do, I have gone to using the micro cuff tubes and I've been pretty happy with those like overall. Yeah, it's interesting, Paul, you talk about that because we had a part of there's one faction within our group that has like within our ICUs that detest microcuffs because of the uh, lack of a Murphy eye, which is because there's, of course, there's like the, the one off story sort of thing. Mm. Never, um, the, the good old Murphy eye, to be honest. But yeah, I think it depends on like how much, you know, if your kids are going to, this is where some of the sedation issues come in. Like if you have a kid who's going to be hard to, you know, keep sedated. 
um, without really knocking them out, who then may rely more on the ventilator, you know, the, the, the seal is going to be a little more important also, right? And also like, you know, like in a resection, like in a, if I'm going to do like a single stage CTR, I'll tend to use a cuff tube just to make sure I have it sealed for whatever, however many days or I decide to keep them down for. And they have it sealed so it's not getting air in the neck. That's one of the things they tend to worry about. How about you, Rebecca? Do you use? Yeah, we mostly uncuffed, uncuffed yeah. because I just don't trust the trust that the cuff's going to stay in the right place. Yeah. And so no, uncuffed, and we try not to keep them really knocked down, um, which can be hard. But but still, sometimes we'll get people complaining from trying, you know, ventilating and having having um, too much air coming out when they're not cuffed. Yeah. But it hasn't been much of a problem actually. We've we've always used or almost always used uncuffed tubes. Yeah, it is kind of, you know, it seems like the transition where we had seemed to, it's like, if I dare put in a trach that's uncuffed, I hear nothing but, you know, complaints and moans and everybody, it's like, but I'm like, it's like, they're still ventilating, but it is funny how some of that sort of shifted to even like, I think your, your, your ICUs and your RTs and what people get used to. Yeah, we hardly ever put trachs with cuffs, mm -hmm. hardly yeah. ever, ever, but we still get complaints. I mean, the first 24 hours, they're going to complain. Mm -hmm. and then... When we ignore them enough, then <laughs> <laughs> see they they write us up. <laughs> so we're moving on to tracheostomy. Um, so we should have had an intensivist here in this group. You know, we should have had <laughs> <laughs> the. Um, so this uh, this next segment on trach. So um, uh, this was a competency-based assessment tool for pediatric trach. And I thank a lot of the people uh, probably who are on this uh, session or contributed to this. Um, but the goal of this was to sort of identify what are some of the features that would help keep people out of trouble, um, that keep the patients out of trouble after doing a tracheostomy. And some of the things that were identified were, you know, the placement of the trach, um, make sure it's in the middle of the C-collar if they're going to be wearing one, uh, have an extra uh, same size and a half size uh, down, place retention sutures, and ensure the ties prevent the tube from falling out. Uh, personally, I use Velcro because I had one bad incident where no one wanted to cut a plug, uh, the trach ties of a plugged uh, trach um, when ENT wasn't around. And so now, uh, and that didn't end well. And so um, I thought it was uh, just safer to have Velcro because people can undo um, the Velcro. Obviously, picking what's trach and, you know, uh, why you're using it is very important. Um, first change, uh, I typically do five days, transfer to constant OBS. Uh, our patients are still typically in hospital for about three weeks um, post-op because uh, we need two people to be trained um, uh, for eyes on care 24 hours a day. Um, common trach complications, decannulation, accidentally granulation and crusting, which, you know, can be treated with Rutterdex or mucus plug, where um, you can, uh, uh, you know, remove the plug trach. Um, but then there's some uncommon or more scary ones. Um, and these are all patients of mine. Um, uh, so false passage, mum uh, told me that she, the trach fell out and she corkscrewed it back in, which is never a good term, um, because it means that <laughs> it's not going to be in the right place. And you can see here that the trach, um, 
it's fantastic what happened. It kind of went up through the soft tissue, came back out through the stoma, went into a false passion. It kind of wasn't long enough anymore to get back into the airway. Um, here, so here, you know, bleeding uh, from suction trauma or here's from a tracheonominate fistula, um, which is a very nice 3D reconstruction of that one. Um, so for you guys regarding tracheostomy, any tips that you have um, for people to try and stay out of trouble? No? Okay. We can I think securing the stoma is a, is a good tip. We, we tend to, you know, do a bureau flap and mature the stomas. And ever since we've done that routinely, we haven't had uh, problems with recannulating a decannulated child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do sort of a modification where we just advance a skin flap inferiorly, like a inferiorly based skin flap. And I don't know. I think it's, I tell myself it helps. <laughs> At our institution, we have our NPs very closely monitor um, the airway NPs, the patient's post-op, they check in like every day with the team. And that helps kind of make sure that everybody's on the same page education wise and just knowing about the trach and the patient and, right. and decreasing wound complications too. For sure, for sure. So for next on to steroids. Um, so this was, we, we did LTRs on a bunch of uh, pigs and then um, looked at the angiogenesis and we found that the peak of regrowth of uh, vascularity into the grafts was uh, uh, peaks at about 48 hours, but continues for about three weeks. So uh, I try not to use any st uh, steroids after graft placement for three weeks. Um, uh, we have the last sort of topic is safe handover. This was an old, you know, uh, sheet that we used. Uh, for code blue uh, with a little sign next to the bed, all sorts of issues getting that approved um, at our hospital. And it's since switched over to um, uh, Epic where it's hidden in a problem list uh, under difficult airway for intubation. And then uh, it's hidden uh, again in an FYI, which I don't know if that's the best place for it when people are rushing around um, uh, in a uh, in an emergency, but I'd really love to hear, um, you know, regarding uh, from the panel, any additional different safe handover or EMR charting pearls that you guys have for the group. So it's interesting that what you show is Epic and that yours is hidden. So ours was used to be hidden in a problem list that may or may not have been fixed. And we, as part of sort of revamping it actually and building up a, you know, a the difficult airway response team, like that program, we actually did a complete different Epic build, which is, and it's anyone, like every single patient comes through, lit up in the banner, like underneath their name, it says, you basically it's green, if it's, they have a normal airway, it's there's a red, bright red, difficult airway, or white, or then there's a, like a yellow that's been resolved, i.e. if you had your trade, whatever you had your airway recon, but at least everyone knows there's a history. And then there's a there's a nobody knows. It's a you know never been seen before. But every single patient in our EMR in our inpatient world has it. And then it actually it ties into the people who can control that are it's ENT anesthesia, and then the, the critical care and ER docs can put in put on the list and NICU as well. So it's a for us we but by, by after going through all that. Like it launches our bronch notes. All you basically hover over it. The bronch note pops up, and the very first thing that everything says is maskable or not and then intubatable from above or not. 
And that that's actually been really, really helpful. Like it's been, it's, and so we found that Epic actually can do something that's not hidden away. That sounds like a like in the ER and for anesthesia, but like in like say the PICU in an, in an acute like emergency, like, I mean, is it helpful there or without having something at the head of the bed, you know, when it's right in front so of it's, you? So it's no, actually, and so ours also, it prints out. So the other thing that comes off of it, there's a printout that says that we basically filled out, like, this is how you intubate everybody. And so it flags there. And then actually in the ICUs, it, the moment they become an inpatient, the RTs actually put a big red sign out. So that picture that looks like the difficult airway that Epic makes, it's like, that gets big. So you walk around our hospital, it's this. And then on top of that is actually every patient, when they come in, they automatically populate our, the ENT rounding list. So our, our teams all know about it. And then every single one gets a consult note from us that and then once a week gets a check-in so mm -hmm. it's we had two major like major problems that that drove it so unfortunately you know it takes it wasn't one kid dying it was, it was two that <laughs> just basically almost that had horrible outcomes but the second one pushed it over the edge but it's actually a really good system we uh, have we use a sign that uh is at the head of the bed but then we have a banner that comes and it, it's not up at the the corner name it is right smack in front of you that's a that either says this is an airway alert or an anesthesia alert um and you cannot move forward until you acknowledge it and look at it hmm. nice yeah we have sorry sorry dana <laughs> go ahead becca we have bed signs too. I think it's really useful. And we actually have like a, a drawing of the surgery that we printed out from books so that the nurses and everyone knows what kind of surgery, if that was an LTR or if it was a PCTR. And uh, we also talk a lot to the mothers um, all the time, you know, telling them what can and what cannot be done with their child. So, um, and they're there most of the time. So that's really, really helpful. I think that maybe is the, the most helpful is the moms take care of their kids <laughs> and the mm -hmm. bedside. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Totally agree. So we covered a lot of stuff. Uh, thank you so much. And um, on to the next. Yeah, now we're kind of um, at a point where, you know, we're getting close to the hour and a half or so point. And I don't know if we have time to kind of work through, you know, a, a case, uh, kind of putting it in practice. I think the discussion's been good all along. But probably don't have time for more than one. Disrespect both time and give Kalen a chance to um, kind of wrap up his bit too. So, um, I don't. Matt, did you want to share yours? I'm happy to do mine. Sure. All right. Let's see here. And let me get it up and running here. Okay. All right, so this is kind of gets to the tracheomalacia thing. And really what I want to do is kind of go through this with, and sort of what could we have sort of looked at beforehand? Um, and so essentially this is a 20 month old who turned up to us, had a history of a super cardiac, totally anomalous uh, pulmonary venous return, had actually undergone a repair uh, uh, the, uh, elsewhere. This was complicated by a, a thoracic duct obstruction that ended up leading to a lot of lymphatic sort of issues. Ultimately, he went through a lymphatic mapping procedure, went to like four different institutions, ultimately got the cardiac stuff sort of taken care of. 
interestingly enough, had was on a GJ at the time, had chronic lung disease, also hypothyroidism. And during the course of all these cardiac surgeries, it had had a, the, the left diaphragm was out, it had been plicated, and the left left fold was, was uh, shot. And so comes to us, and basically, we end up seeing that the airway is essentially sidewall with a tracheostomy, and it's a distal tracheal stenosis and a grade two subglottic stenosis. So let's see if we can make this uh, decide to play. Okay, so here's here's a bronchoscopy. So we look down, and so there's clearly a subglottic component, and you'll see here we're staring at this superstomal collapse sort of re region. As we get down through, get down a little bit further here come through, you can see, you can kind of appreciate right here that there's a lot of malacic right in this area, particularly where the, the stoma collapses. And then you see, oh yes, another surprise down the way. They kept having problems passing suction when they got sent to us from a couple states away. And we get down and the kid's on a vent at this point. Interestingly enough, it's like the, they actually kid was able to wean off the vent really quickly. Um, we did do at the same time at that time we did an EGD at that we did not do a, an impedance probe. There was no eosinophilia. The uh, flexible bronchial is fairly unimpressive. And so as we kind of stared at all this stuff, we were coming up with a plan, sort of saying, okay, so multi uh, we get multi-level airway obstruction. We have a kid in the vent. They're on this GJ tube, but they're having problems where they're having the, sort of these acute spells with these the, plugging at the distal point. So I feel like we need to get take care of that. Here's sort of another view of the, uh, this is us looking at coming back. And this is where I wish I would have stared a little bit longer, I think. Staring at the stoma and you can see here where it's sort of sidewall coming in. So initially we tried doing some endoscopic stuff on the distal uh, trachea, tried ballooning it, tried cutting it. And it just would cut, just keep getting tighter and tighter each time. So I would have thought that it would have responded well. Maybe that should be my first sense that maybe things weren't going so great. But ultimately decided, well, I'm going to want to do some sort of a, a, a straightforward. I want to be able to get this out. Also, we put an anterior graft in to deal with the subglottis. Okay, I think it's about six weeks later or so. Did a distal just end-to-end -end resection, resected that part, and then did a cervical tracheoplasty to address the stoma. Okay, feeling pretty good. Went to extubate with a very soon thereafter. And the kid just kept crumping big time. And so this is the view. This is, like, this is when the kid's trying to die on us. I'm trying to figure out why he's trying to die. And you can see here, right up at the area, just below the subglottis, we're getting this malacic segment. And as you can see, it starts, and this is right at that area where I did sort of, a, I did like a tracheoplasty trying to pull things together. The distal anastomosis looked great. It was just pulling here. And this is a kid who had, we had gotten off the vent fairly quickly. We weren't really dealing with feeding at all. And so I guess my question for the group, so you see this from time to time, particularly with like these sites where you have these multiple different levels, you feel like you've sort of addressed everything, but then once you actually start pooling the tube and, and then, you know, they haven't had a trach for so long. So what you, I guess my question is like, what would you guys do at this point? Well, I feel like the ones that kind of like crash and burn quickly are a lot of times these stoma collapse kind of situations. We have had a very kind of similar kid. I think it's kind of then led us to, uh, I know we're kind of like maybe anal about like trying to finger plug the stoma with the kid very light with it in the tray out to see how much, you know, try to gauge how much collapse can be and how much is the front wall versus the tract and are the side walls where we're going to put a roof, are they, you know, are they, are the side walls sturdy or is the whole thing collapse? 
and would really just have to be resected. I, I don't know. I feel like because we've been burned with situations just like this enough that we're, we're on the front end where we've become kind of a it's funny you say that because I was like all proud of myself because I was like, well, I would want to cut out the end. I'd want to cut out that distal segment. Like otherwise, I probably would have just, just just cut this out. But then I sat there and I did. I basically kind of rebuilt the side and basically suspended everything. I felt like I got the anterior looking pretty good. But then I'm staring at this and watching the kid try to die. Yeah, from these pictures, it, this video, it, 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 like this, the lateral walls like kind of seem okay. And then there's this sudden point of collapse because mm -hmm. there's or about like an anterior graft with kind of shaky walls, you know, and yep. you have more weight and it collapses even more and becomes even more dynamic sometimes. Like that's, I feel like in retrospect, um, you're going to see that happening. I, the question I have is like, what's the status of the posterior cricoid plate? Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you go in, I, I've, I've gone in and did a posterior split and there's like no plate to be found or, Yep. The cartilage there is like super tiny. And then I have the joy of trying to suture in a posterior graft back there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do we, do we know what the status of that posterior yeah. plate is? So I, and initially, like the first thing I did was I actually went in and did a, an anterior graft. I felt it. It felt reasonably good. You know, in retrospect, maybe I wish I would have put in a posterior graft. Like I felt like the posterior cartilage was reasonable. I've certainly gotten that situation too, where, now I've got this graph carved in it. I can't even get the thing because there's a the cartilage is falling apart in front of me. But believe me, I was definitely thinking that at this point. I'm like, maybe I, mean, I should have put in a posterior graph. And that was like the question I had in my mind sort of staging it. Like I knew I wanted him to be able to be extubated. I knew I couldn't have a trach in after I did the trachea resection because it was like right at the edge of the distal trach tube. So I knew I needed to have him be ready to fly. So I couldn't get away with the the tra the subglottic stenosis. And how 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 many days is this after your graft? I want to say this was maybe like two or three days or so. Like we, I wanted to get the so this was I wanted to get wanted to get the tube out as soon as possible. I typically extubate my tracheal resections within a day or two, and so and then I reintubated. And then this is this was one of maybe four attempts or three or four attempts before I finally moved on to what I did. That I tried multiple times, and then I tried. Well, let's wait it out a little bit. I don't, I, you know, I can't. You know, the thought of doing steroids is something that I don't want to do. But I tried steroids as well. I tried a variety of different things. And... The fair amount of movement is the is the, the point where it collapses a lot. Like, is it really in the subglottis or, or just it's, or... no? It's distal. It is actually just. And what you can do is you can actually feel. I can take like a right angle. I can feel the posterior cricoid plate, and it's that area right when you drop off. So really, what it was, it's like the area. Of where the cervical tracheoplasty, where that trach had sidewalled previously. And it was actually, it was very focal. And this doesn't show quite quite as well. But basically, once you get down to like where the main trachea is and where the resection was, like that, that part's beautiful. That was fine. It was all sort of in that upper where the neck had been had been a mess. And you saw that previous uh, look when I was uh, going through and I was like staring at it back in here. It's like, it was this stuff. And in hindsight, when I look at it, it's this is where the problem was. Yeah. yeah. Did you, did you so, put in um, non-invasive ventilation? Yeah, so we, we so could get on non-invasive ventilation. and But even then, it was interesting because the kid was also sort of a sedation nightmare. Like you try to put him, try to chill him out on some Presidex, then he just like crashes. Mm -hmm. Then he would go. Then as soon as he'd wake up, he'd go absolutely crazy. And so 
Absolutely right. It, it's, a, it's a tough call sometimes with grade two stenosis. If you need just an anterior graft or you should do a smaller graft anteriorly and put a posterior graft too because um, you get a, a funny shaped. Yep. Yeah. What it, but sometimes it's more prone to, to collapsing. Totally. It's so Matt, hard this is when you have this kind of like a little bit of skin tract and some ratty gland that's all around all the stomacides and then maybe there's a little, you know, um, cartilage, you know, that's Wall and maybe down the side, like to differentiate how much is intraluminal tissue and how much you have good cartilage underneath as a framework. You know, it's and knowing that this was sidewalled because the sidewall trach was what led to the distal tracheal problem. Yeah. And so what I had done was I'd actually taken out what I felt was a lot of fair amount of granulation. I sort of tacked everything around. I did some of these suspension sutures. I kicked around putting plates and stuff and I ended up, it felt like I didn't need to. I felt like the anterior was felt pretty good, even though there was a de deficient tracheal cards on the lateral wall, but it tended to be, it was a posterior wall that was biting me. How far, how far down the trachea did the trachealis come into the airway? Um, it came down. So if you would have gone on this pre-op one, it would have been just distal. So it would have been probably, you'll, and you can actually see it like in hindsight, when I went back and looked, it basically stops right about here. And that was where it was. That was, it was very, very focal. And I can jump through it. And that's actually what helped me choose what I did. And so. I'm just trying to see if it was low enough to do a posterior pexy there. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Because the trachealis, like you don't have to tack it up high where it is. It kind of acts like a guitar string where if you create a node somewhere, it just takes down the sine wave from yeah. a large no that's an interesting thought small wave, but well, yeah because so actually what i ended up doing was i was sitting there like i gotta somehow try to get this kid through and i and as you know some you know i i definitely have some experience with stents and so ultimately what i ended up doing was uh let's see if i can make this advance here so what i ended up doing was i actually ended up placing just basically right over that area I ended up placing a stent through there. And once I once I got that in, and this is actually the first placement, I actually ended up sliding it down a little bit further and was able to cover that area. I had to leave it in for like a week. It was interesting that like, I kind of let everything, you know, it was still fairly fresh surgical sort of site. And I usually don't try to put, I try very hard not to put stents on anything that's that's got suture lines or has anything that's going to make it upset. And I actually usually use a little bit softer stent, but I was just kind of stuck at this point. I ended up putting it in. I left it in for about a week or so, and then I went down and pulled it out. It ended up actually like it was enough to sort of like tighten everything up, and and this was it a couple of weeks later after I pulled it out, and like it ended up being fine. Like in the end, like it got away with it, and you can see like everything opened up, and the kid did well. But like the those several weeks, like I couldn't. I mean, I was like chained to this place, and it was like as I was trying to like manage through it, and like the stand, I was like I didn't know where that thing was going to end up. I was. I was literally just trying to like get the kids out of because like and of course these are cardiac kids, these are the cardiac ICU, so they're more jumpy about things in general. And then yeah, like yeah, then of course there's the well, why don't you just put his trach back in? And so, but I've like had that distal anastomosis. So, why do you think the stent worked in yeah. the long run? So what I think it did, and I got this theory of sort of some of the longer term stents that I've done, but even I think what it happens is particularly because I put it in while it was still in that sort of post-operative period there where there was still, I think, healing going on, 
I dissect it all around that area of the stoma. And I think what it does, I think it actually sort of just sticks everything down. Almost like when you do like, and I was like thinking this like kind of back there, it was like maybe nothing I could have done was left an endotracheal tube in, but there was like this, there was a lot of push to get him awake um, for some of the pulmonary sort of things. And so I think what, it, and I've done this now a couple of times in a couple of different kids, just a week, two weeks, a week and a half, somewhere around there. And it seems like once things settle down, they sort of get back to their bearings, kind of get out of sort of like uh, that sort of recovery phase. It does seem to stick. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like, I just don't know if I just got away with something with it or, you know, if it was actually a thoughtful thing that worked well. I mean, how, you how like, did you get out? What's that? How easy was it to get it out? That was really easy. It's basically what you do on those is I, I just take an optical forceps, I bend, I kind of like bend the, the ends in. And just grab it. So that one there, that's a EV3. Those will pull out pretty nicely. There was no inflammation because it looks quite inflamed when we put in. And then just a week is it was really, really good. Good. So what it does, like I and so when I first put it in, I blew it up and then I actually ended up moving it a little bit because I didn't like where it was sitting. And so when I first pulled it out there, like it, I mean, it actually settled down pretty quickly. I don't my experience with these stents using like the vascular stents that are re relatively soft that you can squeeze in your fingers. I just don't find that much inflammation with them. Um, and I put them in bronchi all the time. Um, Is this the palmas? Our Malaysia kids that where we've got like in the cardiac, like these post-cardiac, like absent valves and that sort of thing, just to buy them time. And I, they work pretty well. Matt, were you seeing increase in drooling, or I don't know how awake how awake this kid is? I know he was on a ginger. yeah. He's actually a pretty like with a kid, who you know, interestingly enough, yes, like he was, and that was one of the things too. Is like, should we have done more about you know? We're like, well, he's got a J tube in, like let's just uh, let's not mess with it, let's not worry about it, and it makes me wonder how much of that stuff we should have been a little bit better about. That's pretty much a lot to talk about. And certainly we see kids that look like they have terrible malaria when they have airway edema. And then two days later when their edema is better, it's they have structure normal airways. They never really had malaria. There's a lot of dynamic indrawing of the mucosa and maybe an element of effect there because it behaves the same, you know, because you still have airflow obstruction. But I would see the cartilage wall couldn't have been that weak, you know, because it that wouldn't have fixed that problem, but. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's interesting what you say about that though. Like you're thinking, you know, maybe that's, you know, I had another kid recently, it was a similar sort of thing who we had done a, a trachea resection, had a little bit extra trachealis and it was like this undulating, I was like, ah, gosh, did we not cut enough out? Did we leave too much of a posterior wall? And then it turned out like, because it, it was sort of like bouncing up and down when we were in, it was sort of settled out. He's got a little strange divot back there right now, but. All right, we're gonna um have to uh, call, call a break to this, and because we're getting late, and we and Kaylin has some important kind of final announcements to make and reveals. So, I want to thank my um this uh, the panel for their well their time and their expertise, and I think this is a broad. We talked for a couple more hours, I'm sure, about these kind of issues. Um, so it was I think a nice very nice overview. So I, again, appreciate everybody's uh their input and expertise. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you all so much. That was absolutely fantastic. And I'll be pretty brief to round this out as my kids are yelling in the background. But after this talk, we're going to go through the candidates, the venues, and talk about INPAT. So just a reminder, especially for candidates, if you're not a fellow member, you need to do that by tomorrow before the ballot goes out. And um, anyone who wants to up their membership, all these webinars 
including the INPAT I'm about to announce and all the content from the annual meetings is available to members um, on our website, which is being revamped currently by Dave Moulter and our new um, uh, AMI team that's uh, our management company. So onward to our election candidates. We have two candidates for president-elect in 2024. Uh, these are all alphabetical. So Dr. Alvaro Pacheco and Lindy Wilcox. For treasurer, we have Jeremy Prager. Healthcare at large is Cheryl Hirsch, Jenny Maybe, and Christopher Wooten. At large one on the board is Paul Besch, Mary Shannon Fraccia, Mark Gerber, Cheryl Hirsch, and Christopher Wooten. And on our executive committee, our nominees for ENT representative include Nicola Raul, uh, GI representative Dana Williams, uh, APP rep is Virginia Flacco, and our at-large position had a lot of interest with Irina Draliak, Mary Shannon Fraccia, Cheryl Hirsch, Mike Rutter, Christopher Wooten, and Sarah Zach. So congratulations for an exciting panel of candidates that we get to jump into for the coming year uh, to join Dr. Brigger on the team. Um, Again, if you expected to be there and weren't or wanted, had any questions about any of this stuff, please let me know. There's uh, lots of kind of moving pieces in the background for this, but we're really excited for the slate of people leading our team next year. And then moving on, 2024, we have decided between lots of different candidates that we looked at um, to choose Seattle, Washington. So you'll, I'll be welcoming you all into my backyard this is our new research institute building in downtown Seattle, where we're gonna be hosting the meeting, uh, which is a beautiful brand new facility and walking distance from the Marriott, where we'll have a room block and then lots of other stuff very nearby. If you'd like to enjoy some Seattle scenery or maybe catch a Sounders game or some flying fish, it'll all be available to you in the fall of 2024. So further details are coming out in an email tomorrow. You can um, use that as your save the date. There's going to be uh, a little bit more detailed save the date coming out after that. And we're excited to, to branch out a little bit. So um, after Seattle, we're planning to head in the fall of 2025 back to Nashville, Tennessee. And this is not completely confirmed, but we anticipate potentially San Diego, California in the fall of 2026 and branching out further from there. So if you have a city that you think would be fantastic to host the Aerodigestive Society annual meeting, please get involved. Let us know. We're excited to, um, to kind of broaden our horizons uh, beyond our history into where we could be moving in the future, which also includes, as we mentioned in Denver, um, increasing collaborations with the rest of the world, especially Latin America. Uh, we are planning to attend the INPAT meeting in March of 2024 20, uh, on the 20th in Santiago, Chile. And we're discussing a collaboration as well with the Inoya meeting in the spring of 2025 in Istanbul. So um, please join us for those adventures. And just to unpack this, if you haven't heard it yet, the INPAT meeting is the 21st and 22nd, and the Air Digestive Society program is going to be the day before on the 20th. And we've recently um, developed an agreement to have that entire day on the 20th um, webcasted for anyone who can't make it to Santiago, Chile. So our first web webinar for 2024 will be a whole day event of the Air Digestive program from Santiago, Chile. So please save that date, block your calendar if you can't make it to join us in person for Patagonia and Chile and everything else 
we're going to do down there, um, please turn in, tune in virtu virtually for a fantastic program. The early registration deadline is in two days for that. Um, and that is all I have. Any questions on our announcements? I'll go back to that for you, Evan. <laughs> okay, well, thank you again, um, Paul, if you want to close this out for this fantastic webinar. And um, thank you all for being here. I think that's, I think we're good. Yeah. Again, just thanks everybody. And um, hey. if there's any other questions, there's some way to get them to them offline. I don't know, but um, there's a mechanism for that because we didn't have much time for questions. Though. Uh, yeah. Throw them in the chat before you log off, if you'd like, and you can also um, contact any of us if you have our contact information or aerodigestive.us is our website and you can enter messages to our team there as well. I think we're all quite findable. So <laughs> reach out to us and look forward to doing more of these. And I think that we'll see more and more coming from the society. I think it's an exciting time coming up. Kaylin's really sort of set the uh, set the stage and we've got a new year coming on. I'm looking forward to it. Our next webinar hosted by our new president, Dr. <laughs> Matt Brigger, <laughs> taking the helm January 15th. It's been a great uh, Fortunately, we have Grace Choi to make sure that it gets, <laughs> gets done properly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, All right. everybody. All right. Have a good night.